Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Records and restrictions, U.S. hospitalizations rise as states roll back reopening. Stocks and stimulus, U.S. markets hit record highs as Biden says Americans need aid now. And tech and Trump, top tech CEOs face D.C. lawmakers over election misinformation. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. It's great to be with you for the next hour where we'll hear from more companies working around the clock to keep us safe. We've got the head of supply chain specialist Parcel. They're going to be here to discuss vaccine logistics, including insurance for tough to reach places, essential, of course, for vaccines. Plus, the CEO of Kirgen, whose new antigen test can apparently detect COVID in mere minutes. That's coming up. Essential Technologies, of course, on a day where the U.S. reports another record day of hospitalizations, more than 70,000 Americans currently being treated. California, meanwhile, the latest state to roll back reopening measures as cases rise to records there too. It's not just America. South Korea has become the latest Asian nation to impose fresh health restrictions as its cases tick higher too. A reality check, I think, for investors who were once again eyeing a post-pandemic world Thanks to Moderna's positive vaccine news, that helped the Dow and the S&P 500 hit fresh record highs yesterday. We're seeing a bit of consolidation here in Tuesday's pre-market session. Take a look in Asia, Japanese stocks powering to a fresh 29-year high. They're up some 13% month to date. What about for the retail giants too? Well, they continue to rev up as well. Home Depot and Walmart out with strong results pre-market. Walmart's online sales surged some 29%. It's a bit of uh, buy the rumor, sell the fact, as you can see there under pressure pre-market. U.S. retail sales eked out a rise for the sixth straight month in the data this morning too. But last month's numbers were revised lower. It's all part of what we call the K-shaped recovery phenomenon. The wealthiest can continue to spend. The poorest simply can't, and many of the rest are using savings from the CARES Act cash that was agreed by Congress back in March. How sustainable is this spending, especially when millions of Americans will lose unemployment benefits at the end of the year if we don't see further help from Congress? Just one of the challenges for the president-elect. Let's get to the drivers. Record COVID cases, record hospitalizations. In the United States, more than 166,000 new cases were reported yesterday. President Trump, of course, still refusing to discuss the pandemic response with Joe Biden, who says lives are being put at risk. More people may die if we don't coordinate. Look, as my chief of staff, Ron Klain, would say, who handled Ebola, 
A vaccine is important. It's of little use until you're vaccinated. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, such an important point. Vaccines are coming, but they're not here yet, and we have to bridge that gap. The president-elect also talking about needing more help immediately. Congress needs to do something, but he also talked about practical steps. Joe as well, hand-washing, social distancing. He even talked about the possibility of a mask mandate. Very, very different messaging from the current occupants of the White House. That's true. And quite frankly, it seems that the president-elect is trying to hit all of the right notes, if you will, uh, at this early stage in the transition, uh, pushing hard to try to get people on the track that he essentially ran on during the campaign. Of course, it's not clear at all uh, what type of cooperation he's going to get from the outgoing administration, especially on that issue of uh, helping out in order to get people who are working on vaccine distribution and development um, in contact with people who are actually going to be administrating policies uh, on January 20th and going forward. Mr. Biden, as you could see in that soundbite, really struck uh, a very different tone from some of the other speeches that he's given, uh, particularly when he said more people may die if there is not coordination. That, of course, is stepping up the pressure on the administration to open up the floodgates and allow people in this administration to cooperate with his incoming people. Not clear at all that that's going to work. Uh, No word from the president. We haven't seen him in numerous days, but he has tweeted again and again some of those baseless comments to his base about winning the election, uh, all of which uh, simply has the effect of undercutting this incoming administration, Julia. Yeah, at the worst possible time. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that report there and managing. We could hear the loud report going on next to you, so um, well handled there as always. So, Joe, thank you for that. All right. In Europe, the latest COVID restrictions are beginning to show differing results. France and Germany have undertaken lockdown measures since the beginning of the month. France says cases have been declining now for 10 days and the peak of the second wave has passed. However, in Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel says more must be done despite a slowdown in infections. Jim Bitterman joins us now. Jim, it's interesting to uh, compare and contrast here. Germany going for a lockdown light option and saying, look, more needs to be done. Angela Merkel this week saying she doesn't have the backing of states in order to be able to enforce that. France, at least, the messaging here seems to be better. It's interesting. Well, exactly. Uh, France actually did, did get some bad news overnight in the sense that the hospitali- hospitalizations reached a new peak, the highest they've ever been. But the testing positivity rate, as well as the rate of increase in hospitalizations in France, has been slowly dropping. So, uh, in fact, the French are, do feel like this. I think the French health minister said the other day that they feel like they are sort of at the peak or reached the peak. Uh, it doesn't mean that things will necessarily go down, but they've also said, the government has also said there's not going to be any lifting of restrictions until at least uh, the 1st of December in France. Meanwhile, in Germany, uh, they're seeing a similar thing. They believe they're sort of at the peak, but Madame Merkel said uh, this morning that she, in fact, would have liked to impose the greater restrictions on Monday, and she's going to go back to uh, the states, the various German states, uh, next week 
to uh, call for tighter restrictions than what they already have on, even though things seem to be leveling off, she would like to get the incidence rate, the number of people per 100,000, down to about 50 patients, 50 COVID patients per 100,000. And at that level, they believe that they can restart uh, contact tracing. Uh, right now, it's just so widespread, both in France, the United States, Germany, all practically everywhere, it's so widespread, you really can't do contact tracing. And she'd like to get the Germans back to the course where they could do some contact tracing. She said, basically, we have to just avoid contacts. And she, like leaders elsewhere, have been just appealing for citizens to take some responsibility. Julia? Yeah, and people all over the world, I think, very resistant to going back to those more stringent lockdown measures. But at times, um, it's the only choice you have. Jim, on that note, Sweden at the beginning of the pandemic was very closely watched, seen as a test case for a nation that decided not to lock down, was talking about herd immunity at the beginning too. And yet I noticed in the last 24 hours, even Sweden now announcing restrictive measures. Talk us through that. Exactly. They, I think, have sort of made it, uh, made the, thrown in the towel here, basically. They've decided that uh, it's just not working. The whole idea of approaching herd immunity is not working. The case levels are going up. Uh, the prime minister said, to, told the, uh, the Swedish public that uh, basically during the first wave of COVID, that uh, the people did seem to be self-disciplined. They were able to avoid contacts and whatnot. But on the second wave, they have not. Uh, and so the case levels are going up. Uh, so uh, he plans to impose restrictions to uh, impose a, a, a no more than eight people gathering in public places that would be include bars and restaurants or that sort of thing. Of course, they can't do anything about private homes, but he's again appealing to self-discipline, urging the Swedes to take this upon themselves to stay away from other people and try to get these numbers down. And I think that's probably the same message being heard all around the world. It is. Act in the best behaviour of yourself and, and those around you and try and protect each other. Yes. Jim Bitterman, thank you so much for um, that report there. Now, setting aside current COVID concerns, US stocks hit fresh records on Monday's session. Moderna's vaccine and the positive news there providing a further shot in the arm to the recent rally. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, you'd be forgiven for missing it, but there is, I think, a tug of war going on between the views of a post-pandemic environment and investors wanting to buy some of the beaten down stocks versus comparing the current reality today, which is still incredibly challenged. Yeah, definitely. It looks like we uh, probably aren't going to have a chance mm. to bust out those down 30K hats today because the broader uh, market, the Dow and the S&P 500 is lower. But you're right, Julia. When you look at what's happening right now, it seems like every day there is this flip-flop between people saying, you know what, we're going to buy the beaten down companies that are going to benefit from a vaccine, things like the cruise lines and the airlines. But then a day like today, you have the big tech stocks taking the lead again. The NASDAQ futures are a bit higher, even though Dow and S&P are pointing to a lower drop. So I think investors really just can't make up their mind. One day they're like, hey, guess what? Carnival's not going to go out of business, so let's buy their stock. And then the next day it's like, oh, you know what? Amazon and Netflix are pretty strong companies. Let's go buy them instead. Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, investors buying into some of these beaten down stocks, like the travel stocks, the hotel names. And we had Best Western's CEO on yesterday saying he's seeing a tremendous amount of cancellations because people are too frightened now to travel. So it's the timing mismatch, I think, that people, ordinary people, not investors, have to get their heads around here. Now, Paul, speaking of winners, general winners, quite frankly, Tesla being added 
to the S&P 500 as of December? Yep. Finally, I think a lot of people would uh, say, given that, uh, you know, say what you want about Elon Musk. This is a company that has revolutionized the auto industry. It has a market cap that dwarfs the combined big three market value. And they have finally been consistently profitable, which was really the thing that was keeping Tesla out of the S&P 500. So now that you have Tesla joining the index next month, it's going to be fascinating to see all these funds that are index funds, if they haven't already bought Tesla, they're now going to need to buy it for S&P 500 ETFs and uh, index funds. But also, what's it going to mean, uh, you know, going forward, uh, you know, for the fact that, you know, Tesla immediately becomes one of the largest companies in the S&P 500 as well. So Elon Musk now has the ability to move the market writ large, not just his company. Yes. Put the phone down. Watch that Twitter handle. I think that was what you were trying to say, but doing it diplomatically, unlike me. Monica, thank you so much. You and I excluded, of course. I know. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. All right, the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter back in the hot seat today. Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey set to be grilled over their handling of misinformation when they testify before Congress. CNN's chief media correspondent, Brian Stelter, joins us now with more. Brian, great to have you on the show. I think everyone agrees that they aren't getting it right. The problem is no one really agrees, at least in terms of the two parties, what they're getting wrong and how they're getting it wrong. And I think the election provides perfect fodder for them here because, of course, both candidates still claiming victory. Yes, indeed. Two weeks later, and President Trump's tweets, these lies about claiming victory, they are being flagged by Facebook and Twitter, but in a rather weak way. Uh, There's growing criticism of these platforms for not taking uh, stronger action against Trump for spreading really dangerous misinformation on his on his platform. He is the outgoing president, after all, so perhaps he doesn't have as much sway as he used to with these platforms. But Republicans still do have a, lo- a lot to say about uh, social media platforms. And this uh, hearing today is a, a GOP-controlled Senate Judiciary hearing uh, led by Senator Lindsey Graham. So we're going to hear a lot about allegations of censorship of conservatives, even though there has never been proof of widespread uh, concerted censorship of one political group or one ideology. We're going to hear a lot of those complaints today. This hearing's titled Breaking the News, and, and it's all about censorship. So we're going to hear a lot from Republicans today about that. And of course, from Democrats, we're going to hear about concerns that these platforms are not doing enough in order to take action against uh, disinformation. Yeah, breaking the news, I'd say breaking democracy, quite frankly, and uh, breaking the fabric of um, society. But do we expect action, ultimately, Brian, to, to tackle some of these issues, concerted action, I mean, from Congress, because I think behind the scenes, these big, big tech giants are saying, look, we, we need help. But until you give us stringent rules that we can follow, uh, we'll continue to do it our own way in the best way we see fit. And that's the problem. On Barack Obama's book tour, he is also saying that regulation is needed for these social media platforms. It's, uh, I think, a, a probably a consensus view that there should be something that changes. Uh, however, it's almost impossible to get anything through Congress, almost impossible to reach an agreement about what should be changed. And I actually think these big tech CEOs like Dorsey and Zuckerberg, they've won every time they've been up to Capitol Hill. They sit there for hours. They deal with inane questions. Dorsey's beard gets longer and longer. But they come away pretty much unscathed because these uh, lawmakers don't seem to have a clear path forward to actually change Section 230, actually make other changes. Uh, maybe that'll change in the Biden years, but I think every time they're up there, the, these tech CEOs end up coming out ahead because, they, they, you know, the lawmakers huff and puff, but they don't blow the house down. 
Yeah, and they need to reach agreement within them, themselves and within Congress before they yes. can tackle these yeah. guys or they walk away winners, to your point. Right. Brian, great to have you with us. Thank you so Thanks. much. Brian Stelter there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Hurricane Iota is barreling across parts of Central America and heading towards areas that were battered by Hurricane Etta just two weeks ago. It made landfall in Nicaragua as Category 4 storm. Late on Monday, Iota has weakened but still remains extremely dangerous. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo wrapping up a short visit to Turkey that didn't include any official meetings. Instead, the focus was on religious freedom. Pompeo met with the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church in Istanbul. His visit comes amid strained ties between the two NATO allies. All right, still to come on First Move. After development comes distribution. The CEO of cold chain experts, Parcel, Getting it, says getting a vaccine delivered may be the biggest challenge yet. He joins us later on the show. And the COVID test you can take in your coffee break. I speak to the CEO of Kirgen as it introduces a 15-minute COVID test. Portable too. Stay with us. That's next. First move on yet another busy day for global markets. U.S. stocks set to pull back from record highs, the Dow being pressured in part by a drop in Walgreens shares. Amazon has announced the launch of its long-anticipated online pharmacy that could take sales away from both Walgreens and CVS. Both are falling pre-market. Oh boy, the Amazon effect strikes again. Warren Buffett also sees opportunities in the healthcare sector too. Just released filings show Berkshire Hathaway buying new stakes in drug makers at Bristol-Myers, Merck, AbbVie and Pfizer, all gaining pre-market, so bucking the broader trend. We're now joined by Julian Emmanuel. He's the Managing Director and Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist at BTIG. Julian, great to have you on the show. I know you also see value in healthcare stocks too, but we'll get to that because I want to start just by talking to you about what we're seeing in terms of the flows and the rotation from pandemic losers, no, pandemic winners into losers and back again. Are stocks vulnerable at record highs here? uh, We we believe they are in in the short Mm. term. You know, there's no question about the fact that when you think about 2021, the elements are in place for continuation of this run we've had since March. However, if you look at a chart very simply of the last two and a half years, the way you get to the long term is this series of short terms that can be really, really violent. You know, you had a a bear market of 20 percent in the fourth quarter of 2018. And then just this past February and March, you had a one month 34 percent plunge. We're not calling for that. But the issue in, in the near term is that the economy, as we saw this morning in the retail sales figures, is starting to soften materially. And, you know, we all know, reading the headlines, that the softening is probably likely to accelerate given the restrictions that are coming in place nationwide uh, to fight the virus. So it's really a time uh, where I think we need to be prudent with risk and, and really, hopefully, we get some stimulus action out of Washington, which we haven't gotten. It's like this tug of war. I described it 
like that earlier on in the show between this post-pandemic future and the hope that the recovery will be sooner rather than later, thanks to the vaccines coming on the market in the first and second quarter of of next year, we hope. But at the same time, you look at the present reality and the restrictions and the COVID cases rising and you wonder where we end up here. Are, are you basically saying there's a lid or a cap on where aggregate stock markets can go until we see stimulus or we, we get the virus under control? In, in the near term, that, that is certainly uh, how we're approaching it. Um, yeah. You know, we think long term, again, the case for higher prices is probably as robust as it's been, given the fact that you started to see this cyclical rotation, every bull market in its sort of full flower has had this kind of cyclical rotation. Um, and we've seen it in fits and starts over the course of this year. But the last several weeks are the first time that it's happened with the kind of uh, um, you know emphatic nature that says that higher prices are likely in store. It's just that the short term really argues against a continuation of this cyclical rotation. And so you have to ask yourself, as you look out over the next month or two, you know, where's the leadership coming from? And, and we don't see any discrete leadership here over these, these next couple of months. So it's not a reason to par back into the pandemic winners like Amazon, like Netflix, like Zoom. So I, I think you have to ask yourself, Julia, right, if, if the economy turns down, if you go into a recession, which would you know, technically qualify as a double dip, uh, and the one time that's happened in the modern era, it's not been a, a good time for stocks. You have to ask yourself, if the economy slows down, are you going to be buying more items online? Are you going to be doing more video calls? And, and you have to think the answer to that is likely you're not. Mm. It's such a great point. So what's the probability of the double dip going into recession as we head out this year into the first quarter of next year if we don't see stimulus before the inauguration? Well, it's hard to put a number on it. But again, you look at the retail sales this morning and, and, and you know, they came in dramatically lower than expected. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, whether that number is 20 percent or 40 percent is very hard to say. But what we do know is that, you know, stocks trading on, you know, multiples in excess of, of 25 times current earnings uh, really are discounting a much lower probability of that recession than you know what the actual news flow dictates. But again, I want to stress is that once we get through this short term, all the elements really are forming into place for a continuation of the rally, which started in March. But we have to get there first. Yeah, we just have to get through the next um, the next few months. So what should investors be doing at this moment? And I hinted at the beginning of the interview. I know you like healthcare stocks. Well, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that with the broad healthcare sector trading at a five-turn multiple discount to the S&P 500 versus an historical average premium of one and a half turns, that you're seeing some of the smartest minds in investing in corporate America doubling down on their bets in, in, in healthcare because really the value is there. And in our view, you know, it, it's normal to think, particularly when you go back to 2016, that the politics uh, caused this discount to uh, to emerge in healthcare. But as we look at going forward, uh, President-elect Biden has really made the case that he's not going to rip up 
the Affordable Care Act. He's going to improve it at the margins. And when we look at the Supreme Court, it's not likely that they're going to strike down the ACA in its entirety. So you really have a, a backdrop for what is very, very positive. And I point out that healthcare tends to perform well if we have sustained market volatility, which, as I said, we could see over the next couple of months. Yes, and Julian, I include you in those smartest minds too. So it all makes sense to me very quickly because I have about 30 seconds. Financials, we saw a mega deal in the financials. PNC buying BBVA's US business this week. More consolidation, more upside in banks? Uh, we think so. Um, mm. the, the, the whole idea of branch banking, as we know, is, is being dislocated by, you know, fintech. Um, but yet you still have this backdrop of, of lots of liquidity. Banks have done a very good job of setting aside sufficient loan loss reserves for what really is going to be uh, not the degree of downturn, even if we have it in the next three to six months, but they're over-reserved and letting those go as the economy turns. And we do expect it to turn next year. After all, the vaccine is in front of us. Uh, we think it's a natural that the sector consolidates. Yeah, ties to that longer term recovery play. Julian, great to chat to you as always. Julian Emmanuel, Chief Equity and Derivatives Strategist at BTIG, one of our brilliant minds. Thank you for that, sir. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stock markets are up and running this Tuesday. And as expected, we've got a mostly lower open for the U.S. majors. The Dow and the S&P pulling back from Monday's record highs, though gains for the small cap, the Russell 2000, as you can see there. The Dow yesterday coming within 50 points of that 30,000 level. But we're moving further away, at least at the start of the session. Stocks under pressure on renewed concerns about America's spending power, the consumer power. Retail sales rising a mere 0.3% last month. That's a big drop from the month before. That is a concern, slowing economic growth. Now, Airbnb says it made some $200 million in the last quarter, even as the global pandemic restrictions tightened. The privately held home rental company filed papers to go public yesterday. Its Nasdaq debut is expected by the end of the year. Now, we may be on the cusp of a COVID-19 vaccine, but distributing it will be the next challenge. Any vaccine will require a stable, constant cold chain as it journeys across the globe. Parcel is a cargo insurance company that uses tech and data to monitor supply chains. It has expertise also working with vaccines. For the past two years, it's partnered with the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations in Africa. That's Gavi, as we've called it and talked about on the show in the past. Joining us now is Ben Hubbard. He's Parcel's CEO and co-founder. He also served as the chief of staff at the U.S. Agency for International Development under President Obama. Ben, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Just talk to me about your work with Gavi over the last couple of years and what your data shows is the biggest risk to vaccines as they travel around the world. Yeah, well, thank you, Julia. You know, you're, you're right. The journey of a vaccine can be perilous. This is a product that needs to be kept within strict temperature compliance as it's shipped in many cases thousands of miles across the globe, changing dozens of hands across different modes of transit. And you know, if there's any break in that cold chain, it can render the vaccine um, impotent. 
And I think that's one of the unique challenges of distributing vaccines is that it actually really does require near perfection in our ability to deliver them every time, everywhere. And you know, that's what we've been working with Gavi on for the last two years is um, you know, putting in low cost temperature sensors in these shipments to understand what's happening to them. And the data we've collected um, has taught us some pretty remarkable lessons. We've learned that it's actually um, the risk to vaccines you think in a cold chain would be heat, um, but actually the opposite is true. Our data shows that uh, uh, vaccine freezing is actually a bigger risk uh, due to these ice-cooled coolers and faulty refrigerators. Uh, we've learned that moving vaccines uh, faster, particularly through uh, the what we call the last mile, can dramatically lower uh, the risk of loss to those vaccines. And we've learned things like uh, in one supply chain we've studied that 50% of the vaccine damage actually comes from just 5% of the refrigerators. Wow. So we're able to target those refrigerators, improve them or replace them. This, is, this sensitivity is so key. If it just comes down to 5% of refrigerators that perhaps need replacing and that helps you protect the chain and protect the system, then that's, that's pretty incredible. What we've learned in the last couple of days or the last week, including the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, is that that one needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees, that Moderna's vaccine needs to be stored at minus 20. Given that we're talking about very cold temperatures already, are the same issues that you're talking about with freezing vaccines applicable in these cases? Yeah, well, let me first say, I think every vaccine is going to have a role in vaccinating the planet. Um, the Good ultra point. cold chain obviously uh, presents some unique challenges, uh, even in the United States, uh, to say nothing of the rest of the world, where really two thirds of the world does not have the advanced technology to distribute an ultra cold chain vaccine. Um, we have some other breakthroughs on the horizon, which we're very excited about. But I think with all the media attention on ultra cold chain, it's actually important for listeners to understand that most vaccines are actually kept in, in a typical cold chain, which is two to eight degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, sometimes there's some freezer uh, vaccines. And, and that's where risk of, of, of freezing is actually a, a greater risk. Um, but I think it's important to, to understand, again, all the attention has, uh, in recent days has been on you know, how we're going to get enough vaccines to, to vaccinate our communities here in the United States and Europe. Um, but the, this is really a, a pandemic. Um, the, the pan prefix means that the disease is everywhere. And, and what we're really talking about is actually vaccinating the planet. And unless we do that, we'll really never be free of, of COVID-19. And there's just simply not a national solution to a global crisis. We have to vaccinate everybody. And that poses some pretty monumental logistical challenges. So talk to me about insurance, particularly when we're talking about distributing vaccines in emerging markets, difficult to reach places. In the past, I believe it was actually impossible to, to get insurance to try and protect the, that vaccine distribution, which is mm -hmm. specifically what you've focused on. And even just targeting doing the last mile, as we call it, more quickly. You've had incredible results, I believe, in, in Uganda. Yeah, well, um, you know, the data tells us ways we can improve the supply chain. It also helps underwriters understand the risks to those vaccines. So traditionally, these are there's these are tough products to insure because there's not a lot of data on them. Um, and they're obviously in, in, in markets with 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 weaker infrastructure. So once we're able to collect this kind of data, provide visibility into the risk, it actually becomes an insurable risk. And so we're very excited 
uh, we've put together something called the Global Health Risk Facility, which will be launching in January, which is really an unprecedented alliance between the insurance industry, technology, uh, and global health partners to make insurance available and affordable for COVID-19 distribution, but really all vaccine distribution, all global health products, um, uh, wherever they're being distributed, including uh, those higher risk in-country distributions, which has traditionally been the hardest risk to insure. This is incredible. It's giving me goosebumps. And it happens a lot when I have these conversations because this is not just a game changer for vaccine distribution for COVID. It's a game changer for how we do this going forward. And that's also one of the critical elements. Ben, when that launches in January, come back and talk to us, please, because we want to hear all about it. Um, Ben Hubbard, CEO and co-founder of Parcel. Thank you so much. And thank you for the team's work. It's amazing. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. All right. After the break, scaling up and speeding up the portable future of COVID testing. Stay with First Move to hear the latest. Welcome back to First Move and Testing Times. United Airlines has launched a program to test every passenger for COVID flying from Newark, New Jersey to London Heathrow. And who better to try it out but our Richard Quest? And he did. Watch this. Newark Airport, once a thriving hub for travellers, now a comparative ghost town. As COVID-19 runs rampant through the United States and Europe, Many travellers are shunning planes, worried about catching COVID on their travels or onerous quarantine restrictions when they get there and when they get back. International travellers face specific problems, a patchwork quilt of quarantine restrictions and regulations. For instance, who's going to fly to London if it means they have to quarantine for 14 days if they're just going on holiday? Testing could be the way to avoid lengthy quarantines. And United is experimenting with testing all passengers over the age of two for free on select New York to London flights. They guarantee everyone on board, crew and passengers, has tested negative. You have to think of this not about what's happening now with one flight to London, but imagine that this is the way it's going to be for multiple flights across uh, the ocean as testing becomes more accepted by various governments. Then you're going to have five, ten, who knows how many flights with passengers doing the COVID test. Yes, are we ready? The nurse will see me now. (laughs) Now that was a piece of cake. Easy for me, a potential lifeline to the ailing airlines. United's chief executive Scott Kirby told me they're trying to prove to governments testing is the answer. We're hoping that a negative test uh, can give confidence to governments around the world to let people come in and avoid the quarantine requirements. Because as you know, if if there's a two-week quarantine, people simply aren't going to travel in these international markets. Public health experts remind us testing has its limits. There's a small chance the test could be wrong and the risk someone could have the virus and still be in the incubation period. Testing negative in New York, but testing positive in London. A recent attempt to restart cruises in the Caribbean required all passengers to test three days in advance and on board, only to end up with seven passengers contracting the virus. 
United's chief executive says he knows testing is not 100% foolproof, but believes as the world waits for a vaccine, testing, air filtration systems and enhanced cleaning, along of course with masks, help passengers get back into the friendly skies. We are now on our way to London, and I've since learned that one of the prospective passengers did test positive for coronavirus. United had a plan in place for such an eventuality, and that person has been isolated and is being taken care of. As for the flight, the airline regards it as a great success. After all, it has managed to weed out those passengers that would have been a greater risk to others. As a result, it means the rest of the passengers can fly with greater confidence and safety. Richard Quest, CNN, aboard UA14, heading to London. I'm back again. Oh, Richard Quest there. You're watching First Move. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. 73,000 people in America currently hospitalized with coronavirus. That's the highest total ever. That's as new cases continue to surge, with 166,000 new cases reported in the country yesterday. Omar Jimenez reports. An unending surge in coronavirus cases nationwide. The United States reporting another 166,000 new cases on Monday. More than 73,000 patients are currently hospitalized with the virus. Hospitals are overwhelmed nationwide, but especially in rural communities. And in St. Louis, health officials warn area hospital ICUs will run out of room by the first week in December. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom is considering a curfew to help slow the spread after the state reported nearly 10,000 new cases Monday, its highest figure since August. This after Newsom pulled the emergency break on the state's reopening and has placed 41 of the state's counties in the highest tier of restrictions. We are seeing case rates increase and positivity rates increase as well. No longer concentrated in just a handful of counties. In Oklahoma, bars and restaurants will close at 11 p.m. and tables must be at least six feet apart to try to quell the current uptick in cases. Now is the time to do more. We need to pull together. Oklahoma, I need your help. The hardest hit Midwest is seeing an aggressive spread of new cases. The region has some of the highest seven-day test positivity averages in the country, including Iowa, which is reporting an average of more than 50% of tests coming back positive over the last seven days. The governor there is limiting indoor gatherings to no more than 15 people and issuing a mask mandate for all indoor public spaces where physical distance can't be maintained. President-elect Joe Biden urging the nation to wear masks amid the upswing. I strongly urge you to do it. There's nothing macho about not wearing a mask. But South Dakota's governor, Kristi Noem, still vowing to fight any mask mandates, insisting on a limited government approach, despite South Dakota seeing an alarming uptick in cases this month. And in El Paso, the deaths have reached such highs that medical examiners are having inmates help move the bodies. There is one bright spot, though. After pharmaceutical company Moderna released preliminary trial data saying its vaccine is nearly 95% effective, Dr. Anthony Fauci saying. The cavalry is coming, but the cavalry is not here yet. So what we should do 
is that we should make the hope of a vaccine motivate us even more. The bar for lockdowns is that much higher than it was in the spring, but the Navajo Nation in southwestern United States began a three-week lockdown on Monday in an effort to fight the uncontrolled spread of the virus. This comes after a spring when the Navajo Nation had the highest ratio of COVID-19 cases in the United States, even surpassing what we saw here in New York City. CNN's Martin Savage reports. Last spring, COVID-19 devastated the sprawling 27,000-square-mile Navajo Reservation that stretches across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. In May, per capita Navajo infection rates surpassed New York and New Jersey. Dee Dixon's younger sister among those infected. She went in to get tested, and um, she said she tested positive. Just two weeks later, Dixon listened helplessly over the phone as her sister's COVID battle ended in a distant hospital room. I was talking to her and I was telling her, Sissy, you can't go. You have to come home to us by 545. You just hear that that tone of her heart stopping and the doctor came on the phone and she said she was gone. Now COVID's back. Navajo health officials warn of the virus's uncontrolled spread in 34 communities and fear an outbreak as bad as spring or worse. The cases just have been increasing. There's no plateau, there's no flattening. How many ICU beds do you have here? We have 14 in Navajo area. Here at this site, we have six. Last time, the Navajos sent many of their cases off reservation to larger hospitals in New Mexico and Arizona. Health volunteers poured in. That's not likely this time. Hospitals nationwide are struggling to find beds for their own critical cases. So the Navajo are preparing to fight alone, locking down the entire Navajo Nation for three weeks. The voice of the Navajo Nation. Announcing the news on Navajo Radio. Good morning. I hope everybody woke up feeling good, feeling that they want to stay home and take care of themselves. CNN's Martin Savage there. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of U.S. stock markets this morning. A bit of reaction here as we've talked about this tug of war between hopes, future hopes when vaccine deliveries arrive versus the realities you were just hearing there in terms of COVID cases and hospitalizations around the United States. Under pressure today, Walgreens and CVS, the big story, Amazon's online pharmacy opening, of course, not helping the performance of the Dow, bucking the trend, though the Russell 2000 ups on 1%. So these domestic-focused stocks expected to uh, recover to a greater extent or outperform at least when those vaccines come. All right, let's focus now on Anheuser-Busch. It's behind the brewery. It's the brewery behind some of the biggest beers in America, including Budweiser and Bud Light. And it's been in business for over 165 years. I can tell you they're the focus of the 100 Club today. Watch this. Visit a bar or pub anywhere in the world and chances are it has an Anheuser-Busch product on tap. It may be one of the largest brewing companies in the world today, but it started small in 19th century middle America, St. Louis, Missouri. In 1852, there was a brewery named as the Bavarian Brewery. Eberhard Anheuser was one of the chief creditors of the brewery and he acquired it in 1860. And then later Adolphus Busch joined him about 1864 and then ultimately became Anheuser-Busch. Tracy Lauer is the archivist at Anheuser-Busch, overseeing about 17,000 artifacts 
We have the company minute books that date back to our incorporation in 1875. The company grew and prospered through the turn of the 20th century before facing what would become its greatest challenge. Prohibition started on January 16th, 1920. It was a time in our country's uh, history where we couldn't brew our primary product. The company adapted by turning to non-alcoholic beverages. Company CEO Michel Ducaris says rising to the challenge is part of the corporate DNA. We went through war. We went through prohibition. We went to all the financial crises that the country and the world faced, and the company has been always adapting. Prohibition ended in 1933, and beer was once again legal. To celebrate, the company purchased a six-horse Clydesdale hitch and antique beer wagon. More than half a million tourists have visited the Anheuser-Busch stables each year to see the Clydesdales in person and to tour the brewery. The company has suspended those tours for now in response to the global pandemic. Instead, hosting a virtual beer festival as a way to keep customers engaged. Our company mission is really to make sure that people are, are happy. August Bush used to say that our business is to make friends, and we've been consumer-centric, led by innovation, and in the business of making friends for the last 160 years. And we hope to be there for the next 100 and plus. One of the most Google terms, in fact, during the week of the election: liquor store near me. No surprise why. All right. This is, again, one of my favorite stories. And then there were seven. Four more astronauts have joined the ISS, better known as the International Space Station. There were hugs and cheers as the crew of the SpaceX Dragon were welcomed by the current occupants, including two Russian cosmonauts. The astronauts are expected to spend about six months on board the station. Not a bad six months to be away, in fact. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chastley. Stay safe, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.